Listening to the smooth and sultry tones of the McShank Podcast Top 10 2018, only on MPN. Here's Ryan and Clayton. Clayton, it's 2019. Hold on, let me check. Right. Yeah, let the record show that you looked at your <laughs> nude wrist without a watch on right, it. Right, right. <laughs> you looked at your yes. wrist. Okay. Um, I did. I was trying to really make it sink in. This is our 11th year doing this. Yes. Can we, how long can we go, Ryan? I mean, I think until one of us kills the I, other. Until one of us kills the other or one of us dies unnaturally yeah. some other way. But I think that there's a sense of like... The world needs this. The world is fucking on fire right now. Like literally and figuratively on fire. Just not, nothing is nothing is sacred anymore. Everything's cattywampus and just all over the map. They need the wait, wait, people. Hold on. Yeah. What the fuck is cattywampus? You've never heard cattywampus? I'm I'm so out of the loop in, in any pop culture shit. No, Ryan. it's not even a, it's not even a cat- Is that just an expression that's used? Yeah, cattywampus. Is it old? Is, yeah, I think it's like an older... I can look it up. I'm telling you, I've lived 34 years on this planet and never heard the expression cattywampus. Okay, hold on. Cattywampus. Define cattywampus. Here we go. Uh, yeah, it's just sort of like everything's just sort of like askew. Just sort of like okay. all over the map and just sort of everywhere, basically. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Now that you say that, that's Not the only lying. thing it could have meant, I think. Yeah. So I think this wor- the world needs this podcast as like a centering tool as a way not necessarily to heal but as a way for things to just feel normal for a little bit of time i think it's safe to say that i could not agree more and i hope this is like the this is the like aloe vera in people's lives it just soothes all the burns yes that, that they accumulate on a daily basis yeah and it's just medicinal yeah i really think that uh we're going to do some talking about films here, but we're also going to do some healing. I think we're going to do some... I think we're going to really give the people what they want. Welcome to the McShank Podcast, our favorite episode to do of the year, the 2018 Top 10 Films of the Year. I'm ready. I'm prepared. Clayton, are you ready? Uh, f- f- yeah. Let's do it. All right. So... Well, I think we're just going to get into it. I think uh, we decided that I'm going first. Yes, you decided. Because uh, you go went first, first last year, I yeah. think. Uh, Ryan, uh, I love it when accomplished dramatic directors take on genre efforts, especially horror films. I know where you're going with this. I, I think you do because you were there with me. <laughs> I'm thinking of Stanley Kubrick and The Shining. I'm thinking of William Friedkin with The Exorcist. I'm thinking here, Luca Guardino's Suspiria remake. Good pronunciation, uh, by the way. Thank you. Guardin- thank you. Guardino? Guardin- Guardinino. 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 Okay. It's foreign. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had a lot of practice with it. <laughs> uh, I took myself out with that uh-huh. one. Um, I uh, had a lot of practice with it because um, I was singing his praises for Call Me By Your Name last year. Uh, this is his first follow-up, and... Yeah, uh, I think this movie is somehow already forgotten. Um, it kind of came and went. It's an Amazon movie, and fuck you, Amazon, and your shitty marketing, because all your movies seem to just completely 
dust away faster than certain Avengers I could name. <laughs> I just you never hear about them after they come out, and I blame Amazon in its entirety for that. But I kind of thought this was a semi-brilliant movie. Uh, as you know, it focuses on this dancing recruit played by Dakota Johnson who becomes absorbed in a dancing academy that also doubles as a coven for witches. Uh, as you do. As you do. Um, I've really never seen witchcraft taken this far before until this movie, just to its most uh, Caligula-like ends. <laughs> uh, remember that one scene? This, I mean, we, we're going to go into our favorite scenes at some point today, but the cross-cutting scene that has kind of been building, like the tension had been building, and we get Dakota Johnson doing this ag- aggressive dance. And it's also cross-cutting in parallel with this other student at the academy who is, like, telepathically or Some telekinetically sort of linked, linked yeah. with Dakota Johnson's moves. And she's just literally being broken in real time. And Ooh. that was just as disturbing and captivating as... Probably any scene I saw this year, it was like gruesome, but can't look away stuff at the same time. I totally and agree. The movie has an absolutely fucking insane denouement that is just a literal bloodbath. It has to be seen to be believed. Uh, weak stomachs be warned. <laughs> and if the theories are right, Tilda Swinton actually plays four different characters in this film. And I don't know if that's a fact. I think three of them are for sure a fact. The fourth one, I mean, I won't spoil it, but the fourth one definitely relies on a lot of makeup, even more than <laughs> her gender-swapping roles in the movie. Can you guess? No, because I, I, I'm trying to think of what the third and the fourth were, because I knew for sure that I knew mm-hmm. she had the other, I knew there were two, mm-hmm. but I didn't, maybe I realized, I don't know, I don't really, re- I don't really recall, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll have to talk off mic about it. There, there's no better actress to fill in four different roles and different genders. Oh yeah, she's about as androgynous. She's like the you know she's David Bowie. Yeah, she is. She's, if David Bowie were resurrected, she's, she's just David a Bowie. human being on this planet. <laughs> that's it. That's yeah. a good pick. Yeah, that's it's it did not not on my list, but mm. definitely a very affecting, kind of unexpected version and you saw the original too like you you watched back to back nights recently, for the first right? time yeah yeah and i and i hadn't i i went in not having seen any any of them so uh i was uh pleasantly shocked uh and just sort of flabbergasted uh, mm. by what occurred in the last <laughs> 20 to 25 minutes as well as that opening right the beginning uh scene as well so yeah it's a difficult movie to ignore i think it's a little bloated at two and a half hours but it's got a great tom york score it's got some very visceral dynamic editing and a steady hand behind the wheel. So uh, if you can stomach Suspiria, I'd give it a shot. It's a, it's a solid number 10 pick for me. Speaking of uh, solid number 10s, I think the, the number 10 in my lists, I think, is usually reserved for <laughs> most movies that come out from like January to like May. <laughs> You know, like spring. It's, it's a safe bet. Unexpected, like spring things or something that, you know, that, that kind of wowed me and not, you know, from basically like midsummer to the end of the year. And this one is no different. In fact, my first number 10 was also that from that point as well. Uh, we'll get to that in a bit. But my number 10 is Game Night. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> so, because honestly, it was way better than it had any right to be. <laughs> Uh, I mean, really, the, I mean, just fantastic performances from Jason Bateman, Rachel McAdams, Kyle Chandler, uh, 
Uh, but really the star of the movie. Fat Damon. Yes. <laughs> Another notch in the belt of Jesse Plemons. Really one of the funniest performances, I think, of the past five years. I mean, I really, really go to bat for that just absolute deadpan, not moving a single muscle until it is absolutely necessary. And then also the dynamic between Bateman and McAdams and Plemons trying to go to great lengths to not invite him to the game night and... I mean, just really, it's just that their their play back and forth is really great. Um, the script from Mark Perez doesn't really have a lot of writing credits, but it definitely takes you in a lot of unexpected places. And again, mirror, or coupled with those performances, I think it's just, I mean, so, so funny. And really, I give a shout out to the to the directing as well, because the directing... It's by that kid from... Um, that, he's, he's like the kid, right? He was also yeah. an actor. He was in, like, in, in Waiting... And yeah. that, that kid, right? Yeah. Yeah, he was in like Bones and stuff. Yeah, uh-huh. he, he's been in like kind of done. He he's done other sort of comedy things. Like he did, he was involved in the remake of Vacation, which wasn't really that great. But he's done other yeah. things over the years that have been really good. Um, but really, I mean, putting ga- actual physical game pieces digitally as you zoom in to a scene, and I mean, really, you know, it kind of makes you feel like everybody's in the game, really, and mm-hmm. that's sort of what it ends up being. Uh, but I think it's probably the best comedy of the year twisty turny super fun the typical number 10 spot on my list goes to game night i surprisingly enjoyed this one too i wasn't expecting much going in but plemons makes it worth seeing by himself uh he delivers flat out the funniest line of the year i'm not going to say the lines i i can't quote it verbatim i'm going to butcher it but it has something to do with the amount of chips that (laughs) rachel mcadams and jason bateman bought (laughs) and at a time in which They've told him they're not having a game night, and he sees suspicious evidence to the contrary. Mm-hmm. I think I had to pause the movie. I was laughing so hard at that line in his delivery. But then there's even a great payoff for that line sort of in later on where you see that he has tacked like a coupon or he's, he's written a post-it note that says these chips are not two for one spoke to the manager of the store something like that. So he's like trying to get to the bottom of, of this. Yeah, no, it's, it's really, really great. He just plays it absolutely deadpan. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, so game night number 10, very, very uh, unexpected. I think that's kind of what makes it good is that you don't know what you're really getting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we're, uh, one, we're one for one. I uh, wholeheartedly approve of game yeah. night. Uh, it didn't make my list, but uh, definitely an enjoyable watch. Good moments. Uh, my number nine kind of snuck onto the list just right at the eleventh hour. Uh, I kind of looked at "Sorry to Bother You" and "Blind Spotting." It's kind of a one-two punch during the year. Okay. Because they're both they're both filmed in Oakland. They both shot at the same time in Oakland. They both have similar scene, uh, themes of racial tension. And uh, both extremely stylized, uh, but I ended up going with blind spotting for the number nine pick. Uh, it just—I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's like a crease. It's like an. It's like you got two characters in an increasingly gentrified and racially strained Oakland, and the two actors, Raphael Casal and David Diggs, probably my favorite duo of the year. The way they play off each other, the film kind of tiptoes back and forth between this laugh out loud hilarity. And really hard-hitting real social drama. It's kind of an impressive balance it pulls off. Uh, but for all the tonal shifts, it's always grounded and seems to move with kind of like the rhythmic glide of beat poetry and hip-hop or something. Uh, it's It feels lived in with authentic, colorful characters. And 
they just constantly confront this shifting reality of this town they grew up in. But now it's, what is it now? It's something different, full of hipsters and Priuses, neck beards, vegan food. Like they're having to just to confront this, this, this thing they used to call home. That's now something different. White uh, people happen. That's yeah, what happened. Pretty much. Sorry yeah, to say. Yeah. yeah. But you know, Casal is, you know, a white man himself, or at least a, a white uh, Spaniard. I'm not sure what his heritage is, but he, th- there's kind of a role reversal here at the core of the movie. That's, that's fascinating where the, the Diggs character is, is a black man who's just been in jail. He's trying to play it straight. And then you got Casal, who's just a total loose cannon and is like kind of fronting the image that the Diggs character is trying to avoid at all possible. So it's, it's a really weird, yeah, like I said, like a role reversal going on. Um, the film is actually full of some unbearably tense and just kind of nightmare scenarios that when you watch it, you're just like, oh my God. God, like this is just this is real, you know. But then the next scene just has you laughing to the point of tears, practically. So it's it's kind of a at its core, it's kind of something of like a primal scream for inner city life, and and kind of reaching for a catharsis. But it's it's kind of a kind of a hidden gem from this year. I think people should seek it out. Yeah, th- I this was on my list of things that I wanted to see before mm-hmm. uh, we did the the podcast unfortunately i didn't yeah. get to it there was like i got to like five of the things that i wanted to but mm-hmm. um this was yeah. one that just kind of slipped through the cracks i'd heard a lot about it when it was coming out and a lot of people really enjoyed it again i just yeah. just missed it and um i did see sorry to bother you mm-hmm. but yeah the, the blind spotting I, I i didn't catch but it seemed like it had a lot of good buzz and seemed like uh, a lot of people really enjoyed it yeah so, put uh, it on the catch-up list you'll right. I, I think you'll dig it sounds good my number nine is uh, another kind of unexpected, I guess surprise would be a good word. Uh, it's Searching. <laughs> I like Searching. I saw that yeah. one, yeah. Searching, uh, kind of another, this was, again, one of the last ones that I watched. I actually ended up just watching it at home. I think I saw it about five, six days ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I really, really, really enjoyed it. When I first sort of heard the premise, and I, you know they had other movies in this similar vein, like the Unfriended series yeah. and things like that. Um, I just I wasn't sure how it was gonna work or if it was gonna feel forced. Too gimmicky. Yeah, but I think if they if you're able to do it correctly, which these filmmakers were able to do, I think it could really and did create a really satisfying, taut type of thriller. Um, basically, the, the the gimmick we're talking about is that it takes place sort of on a on a computer screen. I mean, really, just any screen available. Yeah. You're never really seeing the action through the lens directly, th- directly through the lens of the camera. You're seeing it. A lot of FaceTime, a lot of webcam. Yeah, a lot of yeah. A lot and, of internet uh, searches. Yeah, there's a there's a, a scene where John Cho's character, who is basically looking for his missing daughter, uh, he sets up like security cameras at one point, and so you're watching through that security camera. Um, which is about as close as you get to real, you know, to the quote unquote realistic filmmaking, I guess. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, it, it's, it's very stylized in the way that it's, they, they really stick to it. They don't just go, well, half of it is on screen and half of it is film. No, it's not. Um, one of the best, I think, openings of any movie, really. I mean, it just, I remember just oh. watching it and just going, did like, you, did you think of up? I did. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and because it's just like, crushing blow after crushing blow really i mean you just <laughs> yeah. you, you start in one spot uh even with an with an old computer and i really like the way that as the time went by they got new computers and everything like that but everything is still done on the screen but it tells the story of the 15 years from when 
the his daughter is born up until when the story starts and there's a little, little a lot of heartbreak in the middle there that that takes place but that would just sort of sort of floored me and was like oh my god i didn't I, I, again, yeah. did not expect that taking you through 16 years of a family history with essentially home videos right really effective and they use it again and again later on too there's a plot device um and an emotional device when they bring up the the videos again but i don't i don't necessarily think it's like the future of filmmaking no uh but i think and I, honestly it could probably be a disaster if it's done incorrectly yeah. but as a, uh, as a formal experiment i think it's pretty successful mm-hmm. uh, there's only a couple things toward the end when really the action of the movie starts reaching its crescendo that they kind of have to cheat it a little bit by using footage from television feeds and right. things like that. Like so you're, so you're essentially again, yeah. still looking through a camera and it's all digital, but it's they had to break away somehow from it or else mm-hmm. they literally couldn't they tell wouldn't the, be able to do they it. They couldn't so. tell the story. But I think that it also it also overcomes it could overcome the style. Like the style mm-hmm. is just sort of it's done really well, so it's just in the back of your mind. But it's also, in, I think the story is really is, is done really well, too. Mm-hmm. So that also stands on its own. And it's not just this formulistic sort of like, oh, here's a movie on a computer screen and nothing else matters. Right. Uh, but they actually took time and, and to, to, to actually make the story make sense and be interesting. Yeah, kind of a fun Agatha Christie whodunit kind of story told in 2018, how yeah. that could possibly be told. You know, John Cho is kind of an interesting character in the background of our film going experience i was i, I was telling uh, uh my girlfriend the other day do you remember american pie you know and i don't know if she's ever seen it all the way through but you will not believe how john cho was introduced to the world <laughs> he literally brought milf milf the concept of the milf into the mainstream and that was that was his <laughs> that was his uh you know sunset boulevard i'm ready for my close-up moment he probably never would have foreseen that I mean, the term had been around, in the, but not really in pop culture yeah. until that happened. And now, now it's everywhere. Now it's, you know, whole entire porn companies are based yeah. around it. And that is how the world was introduced to John Cho. And I think his evolution from that to something like Searching is pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Would you say that he was able to get that MILF money then? Oh, God damn it. <laughs> hey uh, Moving on. <laughs> We're leaving it in. It's all staying in. No, I'll expect your uh, your editing hands to be uh, to be responsible in that case. <laughs> It'll be a light edit, I think. <laughs> light edit. It's all staying in. Uh, okay, uh, my number eight. Uh, the poster told us it was Heather's meets American Psycho, and yeah, I think Thoroughbreds delivered on that. I, I think don't. That was you, this year. That was last year. Yeah. Damn. It was one of those January through. Uh, oh man. Through April movies you were talking about. Did you see that one? No, I did. I you did because we were actually. Just trying to think about movies just in general, and I went, and our friend, one of our other friends, was like, oh, "I really like Thoroughbreds. When did that come yeah, out?" Yeah. And we're like, "I'm pretty sure that was 2017." <laughs> yeah, well, for all you dark comedy fans Ooh. out there, this is one to savor. Um, it's the story of the most deranged and unpredictable friendship of the year, centering on centering on two teen girls played by Anya, Anya Taylor Joy and Olivia Cook. Uh, what starts out as the girls kind of reconnecting after being years apart just spirals out of control into this pitch black examination hilariously of the dangers of groupthink <laughs> or like in this example how multiple people can just persuade themselves to go down these destructive rabbit holes that one person probably couldn't do by themselves 
It, it really takes the constant. <laughs> it takes two, yeah. One, it, it, it takes two, baby. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was kind of reminded of the teen murder drama Bully. I don't know if you ever saw that. The no, disturbing movie. It's no. really it's really good, but hard to watch. Uh, Better Luck Tomorrow has okay. some of these themes in it, and also um, the Peter Jackson pre Lord of the Rings movie Heavenly Creatures with uh, Kate Winslet. Over three. Yep. All right. They're all in there, and they're all worth your time. Okay. Um, there's a really slick style at work here. Some interesting role reversals. How the two characters start out is kind of upended by the time the movie's over. There's this jagged, apoplectic score that just kind of keeps you on edge the whole time. It's these like tribal beats at times. Um, and I, there's this one like hilarious shot that I remember that I always go to when I think about this movie. It's when the Anya Taylor Joy character looks out a window and just sees the the Olivia Cook character just like staring motionless at a tree, <laughs> and they just drag the shot out long, like at a ridiculous length, mm-hmm. and it just looks like you know all it's missing is the straight jacket and the padded walls. It's just a really funny cutaway moment that kind of burned into my mind. Um, on a sad note, this is also unfortunately the swan song for the late great Anton Yelchin. A great. One to go out on. Though. Good one, yeah. yeah. I mean, God, is he? Yeah. He st- he starts out as kind of this seedy character, but he becomes so sympathetic by the end, just being weaved into these two girls' evil schemes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mean... He plays a massive part of it. Now, part of their me- fuck up was trusting him in the first place, I think, <laughs> yeah. or thinking that he could be yeah. a part of this. And yeah, but it's one of uh... their many shortcomings. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but like most of the movies in his short but really storied career, Thoroughbreds earns an enthusiastic recommendation for me. All right. Thoroughbreds well, is my number eight. Had I remembered that that came out in 2018, uh, maybe different, but <laughs> man. All right. Get out the red ink. <laughs> I we, know. We, we couldn't even make it to number eight <laughs> without the uh, uh, integrity of the list being compromised. Uh, all right. Well, for my number eight, I, I think this started a lot. I think this started a lot last year with baby driver just in terms of, yeah, it wouldn't be a, a McShank podcast unless we brought up Mc, uh, Baby Driver. But <laughs> I'm starting to feel that a big factor for me being able to key into a film or basically being able to draw myself in is music. So yeah. whether that's score, I mean, score has a big thing to do with it. I really love listening to film scores after the fact. And, you know, I love following different uh, composers and things like that. But also diegetic music yeah good word oh that is for you people who didn't take film in school that is uh, (laughs) i just felt a burning sensation (laughs) i felt cold all of a sudden the the that is music that is taking place within the world of the film so not the score not the the score or the soundtrack i think it's actually taking place within the movie so i think both of those kind of working together um you know if you got one or great if, if it's centered around that sort of thing uh, I think my enjoyment of it is going to be uh, ramped up a little bit. And that is, I think, the case with my number eight film, which is another Amazon release, Cold War. Ah, yes. So probably the most beautiful cinematography, I think, of any film this year. It makes the case, yeah. Yeah. And well-earned cinematography and directing uh, Oscar nominations. I was very surprised to see them both yeah. uh, on there. But the film opens with these like beautiful depictions of these old folk songs um, by different peasants in various rural villages yep. around Poland. And as the film moves along, we start in these little villages and we sort of 
expand and expand and expand to larger places around Europe, Poland specifically, and and in there's a big section that ha- occurs in Paris, and they're in you know all different spots all over Europe, and so it's interesting to see where they started and sort of where it came from. I really loved because it seemed very authentic. Starts very in the, in the kind of the folklore of the of, yeah. of Poland, yeah. And you find out that the 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 characters we're following are recording these sort of historical and um, true-to-earth songs that these people in these part this 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 part of the world yeah sing because what they want to do is they take the music and create a lavish stage show centered around that as a way to honor the history and a way to honor Mm. the 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 music and where it came from and everything and it's an interesting point about that sort of stuff because this is taking place at basically right at the tail end of right after World War II. Yeah. And that plays a big factor. That's a, there's a big backdrop of that. And then, um, and so I think you can almost feel the, the rubble yeah. around them. I mean, the first, the, the, the first sort of real structure we go to is this wide shot of where they're going to be doing the performing and the rehearsing and the roof is half gone. You could tell that potentially this, could have been some palatial estate before, but it's just mm-hmm. in ruin now. And I think doing the recording of that, it really sort of, it's almost like they were trying to preserve the history of their nation because it had just been so torn apart and so blown up uh, over the past few years that they're trying to hold on and, and, and keep this sense of history for it. Um, wonderful performances uh, put in by everyone, but uh, Joanna Kulig in yes. particular as the femme fatale mm-hmm. Zula, mm-hmm. who is uh, enraptured, I guess, by the character of Victor. 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 Uh, and they they first they meet during the rehearsals that I was mentioning a little bit. They become entangled time and time again. The film spans twenty years. It chronicles their lives both with each other and without each other. But really, the, the I think the main star of the, is the music. The music is spectacular. You know, it's funny because when you prompted that, I, for some reason, did not think you were going to Cold War. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now that you kind of unpack it a little bit, yeah, yeah, I could see how the music would be your key into the movie. Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's like this, it, it played over the trailer. And even honestly, that, that have you seen it? Okay. It, it might come up. Okay. So there's this <laughs> sultry jazz tune that they played in the trailer uh, that hooked me in immediately, and it's basically it's even further out from um, it's sort of further out from from the how how they use it in the big stage show because now you're taking these peasant songs and you're putting them in this jazz setting where now you're even you're twisting it even more and making it even more interesting. But there's so many different types of genres that they use. Because it's you know around the, the the mid to late '50s, so you've got rock and roll, American rock and roll. You've got jazz. You've got so many different types of genres. I think it goes back to that idea of Poland kind of trying to find an identity, really, yeah, trying to figure yeah. out who they were. The stage show can kind of be viewed as like this shot of optimism they're trying to inject back into Poland, and also bring the Polish identity back to the world stage in the end mm-hmm. too. Yeah, so I think it's a very cool film. Had it come out a little bit earlier, this was one of the last ones I saw before we recorded. I saw it maybe only like a, a week ago. Yeah. Um, but a very cool, very, very great. I feel like it would have been higher had it come out like a little bit earlier, potentially. So, um, but yeah, eight Cold War. All right. Well, I, I've seen it twice. Oh. Uh, it is our first case of overlap here. I got it at number six. Okay. So, yeah, excellent choice. I'm I'm really happy we kind of locked in on that one. Uh 
yeah, I'm kind of infatuated with this director's style. His name's Paweł Palakowski, I think is how it's pronounced. But his last film, Ida, was on my list in 2014. And what a one-two punch between that film and this film. I don't think anything came out in the interim. But if it did, I'm, I'm sure he did a hell of a job. <laughs> uh but yeah, this is just another stunner. The same sublime black and white cinematography. Uh, it's it's kind of told. It's this lavish romance on top of everything else that's very jagged at times, but the passion always seems to just seep through. And it's the whole movie's told in kind of these time-spanning vignettes, I guess you would call them. There's hard fade-outs between segments of time where these two characters kind of pick up with each other constantly. And I think the whole time frame, it goes from... 1949 to 65 or yeah, it's a something huge, like that huge span of time it's a huge span of time um and it kind of allows us to like they don't really hold your hand when the new segment starts there's some clues as to what's happened between the years but it also allows you to kind of piece together the missing threads yourself i think um this the passion and the twists and turns between these two characters is really heated and I think the two leads, like you mentioned, they just flat out burn up the screen. Um, the movie is like a criminally short 85 minutes. It's one of those weird things where I really wanted to be longer. Cause really? I, just... I was going to, cause I, literally I was about to say one of the best things about it is that it was 90 minutes long. <laughs> it was so short. Normally I would yeah. be lockstep with you, but yeah. when a movie has me this enraptured and yeah. just soaking in every shot, I mean, bring it on. I can keep going. <laughs> I could have watched it for another 85 minutes. I think, that was the runtime, 85 minutes, something like that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, absolutely gorgeous film, a knockout, and a uh, a number six choice for me this year. Loved it. All right, well, what's, so what you do? You want to go to number seven? Uh, yeah, how about, um, what, I go to my number seven, yeah, I guess? Go, yeah. Okay. Uh, so my number seven is the kind of film that it really needs someone like you or me to champion it and splash it on these top ten lists because it's never going to be loud or flashy enough to suggest itself for this kind of thing or probably most end of the year consideration as well. It's just a quiet movie and it's uh leave no trace. Oh, did you hear about this one? I have. Did you yeah. see it? I know. Okay. I saw a trailer for it actually when we saw cold war. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, yeah. Nice tie in. Uh, it is Deborah Granick's first film after winter's bone. It's been that long. Wow. So wasn't that on your list too? That I think possibly possibly was that was 2010. I think, that was the movie that introduced Jennifer Lawrence to the world. Uh, but yeah, it's been a good seven or eight years between films. Um, this is just a expertly crafted, just quietly subdued achievement. Uh, it tackles this kind of father-daughter relationship operating on the margins of society. And Ben Foster is in the father role, and he's taking a break from his normal sociopathic <laughs> villainy that he just brings to every role. He's like Hollywood's go-to psychopath these days. Uh, and he just adds a lot of texture and nuance to this man who's been broken and damaged by war and doesn't seem to fit in with the norms of society. Uh, his daughter is played by this actress named Thomason McKenzie, and they really they gel so well. It's such a believable relationship that it just is like, is this really Ben Foster's daughter? It's, it just feels that way the whole movie. They just got such a, a link. Um, basically, they live out in the sticks kind of because... Ben Foster doesn't like society and naturally society intervenes and makes them go live in society again. And that's where kind of the drama of the movie is set up. Uh, it moves along and it reaches this surprisingly 
moving and really tender climax that brought like the only real tear to my 34 year old jaded tear ducts this entire year like it actually got a tear out of me it um it's really strong stuff and a really earned ending that felt believable and authentic and it's just kind of a snapshot of a fractured family at an impasse it's great stuff it's a really small movie i don't take it most people listening to this podcast have even heard of it but seek it out leave no trace yeah my uh wife is a huge fan of ben foster and uh, i've heard her mention this film a couple times um but i'm such a good husband that i didn't take her to see it so um <clears throat> so, okay uh but yeah I, I i definitely would like to to check it i'm kind of looking into it uh right now is it another amazon movie Oh, Maybe. that it might be. Maybe. I don't know, because it says watch on Prime Video. I, anyway. I thought it was like one of those kind of, it's not Fox Searchlight, but something like that. Something like Sony Pictures Classics or something. Something, something yeah. like that, yeah. Okay. So, well, what, your number seven? So, my number seven is from a director who is sort of, I think, coming along with whenever they make a movie, it sort of feels a lot like an event. Um, and my number seven is The Favorite. Uh, so Yorgos Lanthimos is that filmmaker and whether you love his films, you hate his films, you have no idea what is going on. You can't argue that he doesn't have a point of view with each of his films. Um, they don't always end up on my end of the year lists, but they are all certainly still very different from one another too. Um, and from a lot of other films that come out that year. (laughs) Um, but this film is no exception. It's his biggest critical hit as well as his biggest financial hit, too. Most accessible movie by a mile. Yeah, it really is. Um, but the the meat of the movie is with the cast and that the, the, the central three characters, Rachel Weisz, Emma Stone, and the absolutely fantastic Olivia Colman, who really, in a film with a lot of strong performances, really stands out, I think, as the Queen Anne of England, who has to balance deteriorating health Uh, and having to make decisions on what to do with the war and having to stroke the egos of the other two women that are pining for her affection. Um, You know, they would love nothing more than to be the queen's favorite. And she has to (laughs) sort of have her hands in all of the, all all of these pies, really. Um, It seems like the women will cut very few corners in order to fall out of favor with the queen. And what unfolds, I think is a very funny sometimes sad and often brutal back and forth of uh, one woman, one up womanship. Um, <laughs> that was a very 2018. Right. That was, was a, very clu- tw- that was a clumsy portmanteau <laughs> that has very long reaching and like dark consequences. It just, it wouldn't be a Lanthimos movie if everyone wasn't miserable by the end, the audience included, I think. Mm. But I think he actually breaks out of his shell a little bit in this one and has a bit of fun. I think with the story it's he's a telling. a ton of fun. Like he creates and shoots the gaudiness, really captures the gaudiness of this time period with these lavish dance parties and slow motion duck or goose races or something around the castle. And there's a very long scene where men throw tomatoes at a naked man who was in makeup <laughs> and a powdered wig. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that was the logical progression from the previous scene. Right, of course. But I think Stone and Vice are both fantastic and earn their nominations. I think Vice in particular was very good. Uh, but Coleman is the real winner. I think the way she handles and doesn't handle the escalating storm brewing for her affection is just great. 
Um, there's a scene in particular where she uh, yells at a servant boy for not looking at her, and then immediately after yells at him for looking at her. Right. I, I think there's there's a clear case to be made for some type of bipolar disease yes. here. It's amongst her many that, other maladies that she has that would never be diagnosed as such at the time, but yeah. that seems to kind of be what's going on there. Yeah. So I I, I like it when Lanthimos is at his highest of opulence, I guess, as it were. And so my uh, number seven is the favorite. Good stuff. Well, my number yeah. six was Cold War, so we're right on to your number right six. Right on to my number six. Well, so the story <laughs> the story of my number six, and I was talking a little bit about it. I was finishing up typing my notes for today, uh, last night. This was around 1130. And we have a, a, a second episode coming up after this where we're going to be talking about other things and from movies from 2018. And as I was putting because there's a character in this film specifically that I love his performance. And there's another actor who I loved one of his scenes in another film. And when I put it together, I went, Oh shit. I forgot about widows. Like <laughs> completely forgot. Like, okay. It's not that I forgot that I loved widows. Like mm-hmm. I loved it. But then when I was putting my list together, I had my whole list of films that I'd seen and I had like one extra spot and, and I just, you know, was like, oh, I'll put this here. And I just sort of jerry-rigged it and maneuvered it around. So at 11.30 last night, I had to lop off my original number 10 that we're going to talk about later. Yeah. And I had to just quickly type up my feelings <laughs> on my number six movie of the year. Uh, fucking yeah. Widows, like for right. God's sakes. Uh-huh. So it's the only female-led heist movie that I'll recognize this year. Thank you. <laughs> we won't be taking any questions at this time. But again, a lot of it is sort of very similar to The Favorite, where... It surrounds a really strong, great female cast with Viola Davis, Michelle Rodriguez, Elizabeth Debicki, and later on Cynthia Erivo. There's so much emotional heavy lifting and also action heavy lifting that I think they all have to do. And I think they all do it with a plum. That wasn't written down. Hold on, hold on. Let me get my GED... My uh, my grad my, my grad was, my grad school. <laughs> the aplomb was cattywampus. <laughs> the aplomb was cattywampus. Mm-hmm. Subtitle for the show. <laughs> so it's, and and I think as I was putting the list together, and I think I realized it more because I had already made out the rest of the list and then mm-hmm. added this one in later. But there's a lot of the things, a lot of the connections. I think a lot of the films on my list this year is their ability to be so many things at once without ever feeling jumbled or messy. So I think in this film, for instance, it's equal parts action film, heist film, family drama, political thriller. It's all rolled into one and each one doing really well. At basically could have been a standalone film of that particular genre and doing yeah. just as well as the, as one of those films would do. Um, it feels very massive in scope, but it's such a small scale because you're really... It's not, it's not really the heist is just the framing, you know, yeah. like the most of this movie, like it, it's always in the background, but there's so much more going on in this movie yeah, to latch onto there because the, a lot of the, the, the political aspect of it takes place for this really small town, a small sub- suburb of Chicago that, you know, is just a nothing really. No, not, not, not a lot of, it's not very interesting. It's just this really small little piece um, in a larger puzzle really um but daniel kaluuya in this is in this film it's terrifying and he is a delight yes he is like he he basically in one scene he can jump between like quiet and psychotic in just like a snap 
and yeah, he's, he's so he's so incredibly he's a very fun. sinister presence throughout yeah. this movie. Just a time bomb. So the the Steve McQueen, um, the alive one, directed this. <laughs> And another great dramatic director taking on a genre movie. Yeah, that's What's true. ostensibly a genre, a genre movie. piece. It's yeah. a little more complicated than that, like you were saying, but it's on paper a genre piece. Yeah. And so there's a scene, and I think, yeah, like he is able to make, and I think the same thing with Luca in Suspiria is they're able Guadagnino. to. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, he's able to, like, do things that elevate what would be normal scenes or normal sequences or anything they're able to add some flair just because they're good at what they do. So I'm thinking of a particular scene where Colin Farrell, who's a rich white man running in, running for political office in a poor town, mostly populated by people of color. Yeah. Like a legacy political figure. Yeah. So he makes a speech about a new project that he's starting to get black women, the ability to work in the community. So he gives this speech in a rundown part of town. This is such a great sequence. After the initiative is announced, he gets in a limousine and carries on a conversation with a member of his team. So if you're focusing on the conversation, which I was for me. Kind of a racist conversation, too. Yes, for the first half. (laughs) For the record. Yeah. For the first half of it, you kind of don't realize what's going on, but you kind of miss what McQueen is doing with the camera. So as the limo drives away, the, the camera is facing on the left side of the car on the passenger side. And you basically see the slums and the, 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 the worn down places and buildings in the, in, the, in the town. And then it's all one shot. And the camera slowly moves across the hood of the car. Glides across the hood, yeah. Yeah, until now you're seeing on the driver's side which is just ritzy, fancy, really nice, rich people houses. Yeah, this is like going for the L.A. corollary. It's like going from Compton to West Hollywood, you know, yeah. in, in like a seemingly five-minute Right, you couldn't stand. do that, but yeah. yeah. But the <laughs> idea being that, yeah, so you're st- both of these places are coexisting in the same city, mm. basically, but the, the, the politician is going to live in the really nice place. And it's all one shot. It's totally seamless, and... But when you realize what's happening, I, my jaw was on the floor. I absolutely love it. It's one of my favorite shots. It's a bravura standout yeah. shot from this movie and really communicates visually what's actually happening in that scene. The progression from poverty to wealth, the, you know, just the, the hypocrisy and just utter, <laughs> utter bankrupt way this politician is presenting himself to yeah. society. But on the inside, there's all these maneuvering going on it's all about power you know always it communicates everything Carl Farrell's going through and that character is going through in that moment and does it all visually beautiful pretty good shot yeah so it's kind of underseen I think uh I don't know it kind of got swallowed up by different Thanksgiving releases that came out and stuff like that but um I think it just this movie has so much value Mm and what it brings just in and everything. So six is widows. Yeah, yeah, I liked widows. I think it gets a little too twisty and turny for me at some points. That it doesn't undermine the movie by a long shot, but it it kind of was like ah, kind of this feels like kind of out of a out of a lesser movie. I'll say mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, certain characters are reintroduced and become a big dramatic device in the movie. And I'm just thinking like, ah, did it really need this? You know, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it did. Maybe I'm an idiot. It's always when possible. That ha- it was a pretty good, uh, it was a pretty good moment. Though. It was pretty it was good. good. It was a good theatrical, <laughs> very theatrical moment. When yeah. It was a good theatrical moment. Yeah. 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 No, it was, I enjoyed this movie. It didn't, uh, it, it didn't leave the impression on me that, uh, that I think it left on you, but, uh, it was a good watch. And I gotta say my, probably my standout scene is probably the first one. Um, it kind of cross cuts between, 
Liam Neeson and Viola Davis in bed. They're a you know, interracial couple sharing a lot of very tender moments. And then we They've also had something hor- horrific mm, happen to them as right, well. Right. So we kind of learn later on. Right. Which yeah. is revealed as the movie goes on. Yeah. And so we see all these really tender kind of intimate moments of them in their apartment, just embracing and what have you. And then we're cross cutting to a getaway that Liam Neeson is doing with his team. The first heist team in the movie that we don't really get to know very well, but the way it's filmed, I would, I mean, I can't, I have no way how to verify this, but I don't think the vantage point Stephen Queen gives us for this getaway has ever been done before. I mean, it's literally in the back of a van looking out with, you know, you've got your, your double doors at the end of the van swinging open on a hinge and that's our only view into this getaway for the entire length of it and it made it very very in in the moment there's there's like a a visceral quality to it and that kind of that whole sequence cutting between the tender and the violent was probably what blew me away the most in this movie really good balance solid yeah very good um let's see what do we want to do next number Number five five yeah five uh so i always i usually have a little movie that could in my uh, in my uh, list every year, it's like the movie was made for peanuts and just somehow bowled me over. Uh, in 2018, that movie's called Minding the Gap. Hmm. It actually just got nominated for Best Documentary, and I mean this movie's budget like you could have you could have filmed this thing by collecting the the tip jar money at a taco truck. You know, it, <laughs> it is just made for pennies, and. I guess kind of the the pitch you would say is it's Dogtown and the Z Boys meets Boyhood in a sense. Uh, it's from a first time director named Bing Liu, and it's this kind of skateboard centric documentary that chronicles himself and his two friends over a five year period that starts out innocently enough, but slowly kind of expands and starts to resemble something more like Hoop Dreams. I don't know if you ever see, end up seeing Hoop Dreams. I never Dreams. actually ended up seeing it. Yeah, uh, but it just becomes something much more than what on the surface it's about. Uh, it's basically an excavation of himself and his friends and like the corrosive effects that toxic, toxic masculinity can have on multiple generations. Uh, the director uses this very candid but courageous investigative tactics to peel back the layers of his friends and his family, including his mom in a really amazing sequence. There's a camera on his mom. There's also a camera on the director watching his mom say this stuff. And there are moments where you can tell they just want to cut the camera and he needs to just collect himself because these deeply painful and buried memories and motivations for things that happened in the past are all just coming to the surface. And it's kind of emotionally overwhelming. Um, But it all leads to something that kind of resembles catharsis. I mean, it's a movie full of deeply flawed individuals and the, there's a ton of just revelatory footage that they managed to cram into the movie's 95 minute runtime. It's kind of a, a a model of economic storytelling and just how you can really get like the most bang for your buck by minute. Um, The skating scenes in particular are just, edited and staged to like thrilling effect. I think the director is actually following his friends on a board while he's also filming and he cuts it together with like some really interesting ideas about screen direction. It's uh, it just makes kind of a riveting watch. Um, we come to see the skating as like this, this like cipher for, for healing and a, a disconnect from the outside world. It's like they're one refuge for escape and like connecting to the past 
the movie's kind of you could say a wonderful and a very difficult experience um but it's a very human experience and this guy's a first time director um and his first his first movie just got nominated for an oscar for best documentary feature the kid is 28 29 i think so son of a bitch yeah i mean i i doubt most people listening to this have seen this movie but See it and spread the word. It's a movie worth everybody's time. Where did you see it? Did you see it at home? It's on Hulu. It's on Hulu. Okay. Yeah, it's the only thing that's uh, I think was streaming it. Was hmm. Hulu. I do see because I'm looking at the poster right now. It does yeah, August seventeenth on Hulu. Yeah. Yeah. I had only heard about this film just sort of third hand again, mm-hmm. listening to other film podcasts and stuff like that. But yeah, um, they the, the the couple people that had seen it in that group that I was listening to on Slash Film, they really enjoyed it. So. You're, I mean, yeah, hey, like you're never going to see it unless somebody tells you to. Yeah, you know, like exactly. It's, it's one of those movies. Yeah, you've got two of them on there now. That's sort of like the other one with the, the Ben Foster one. Too. Oh, Leave No Trace. Yeah, yeah. yeah maybe uh, I'm looking at the list. Mostly, uh, mostly a small movie year for me. Yeah. Um, okay, so my number five. See, I kind of thought this is where you were going to go with this because this is another movie that was looks like it was probably made for really cheap, not as cheap as Mining the Cap. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but another, I had two Amazon releases for all the shit we were talking about Amazon. Ah. Um, but you were never really here. Was number five. Okay, Joaquin Phoenix. Yes. one of my movie we saw together. Yeah, we did. And then I saw it again actually yeah. after that. Um, it was one of my favorite performances of the year. I mean, Joaquin Phoenix is as close to Daniel Day Lewis I think as we're gonna get right, right. now. Um, but he turns in this sort of this really powerful and restrained performance as Joe, a Gulf War veteran who's got a tortured past who was turned to being a hitman, I guess. That's like your next stage of life um, if you sort of wash out in the... In the you got to use that skill set somewhere. Process. Um, but he specializes in finding missing preteen girls sort of as yeah. his way to make money. So a case involving a, a prominent New York politician gets dropped in his lap and what unfolds after that oh, mm. is uh, pretty equal parts horrifying and nauseating. Yeah. Um, but... Again, with all this genre mashing and all these other th- ideas shoved into one film, uh, like some of my other picks, th- it's able to balance two things and have two things in its head at the same time. You know, it's equal parts horror and drama and thriller and slasher and others. Um, the director, Lynn Ramsey, takes a very different approach with regards to the violence in this film because there is implications of a lot of it yes it's rarely on screen and rarely in your face for the type of film that it is and for the type of character that joe is set up to be. many other directors would shoot this very differently yes so way more explicitly so i mean for instance i i think there's there's a scene where we see joe buying different tools that he's going to use for this specific rescue attempt so he's trying out different hammers and duct tape and (laughs) zip ties and all that stuff like that you basically you're setting yourself up for a bloodbath, really. Um, mm. But Ramsey takes a different approach after that. So you're you have this buildup, and you think, okay, we're really gonna, okay, now we're gonna, he's gonna go and kill everybody. It's gonna be great. So he goes in, busts up this pedophile ring, but we as the audience really only see the action unfolding through the night vision security cameras. Through like CCTV, cameras. yeah. Yeah, and. I mean, oftentimes it really, it cuts about as often as a security camera would. So sometimes there'll be scenes where there's just somebody laying in, or shots where there'll just be somebody laying in the middle of the floor. And then it'll cut like a security camera does. And you'll see Joe on the side of the frame, you know, beating somebody with a hammer. And then it'll cut again and you won't see anything. And so it just, it it sort of, 
it almost like she's keeping the violence at arm's length. And I think it mirrors Joe's feelings towards that violence. And it really keys us into what kind of character that he is because he's seen so much horror in his lifetime. You know, his father abused his mother. Right. He had some horrible flashbacks to things that happened. And he basically spends his time trying to find young girls that have gone missing. So he's sort of a reluctant hitman. <laughs> there's, uh, there's not a lot of light in this man's and, life. Yeah. And so, but I think that he almost sees the violence that he has to do as just sort of like a something he has to do, a job hazard or something like that. It's not like he's ever embracing these violent tendencies that he has. In fact, he takes most of them. Some of the best moments of the movie are when he is acting very tender. And when, you know, there's a, a sequence where he runs into somebody who's uh, basically after him and he ends up shooting the guy, but they end up basically Joe gets down on the ground with him and is basically with him in this man's final moments. This is the scene I always come to when I want to talk about this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I remember talking to you about this right when the movie was over. Cause it stuck with me. Yeah. And I think it, the whole vi- lens of violence is probably the best window for me to look at this movie with just what the implied violence, what Ramsey is trying to say with that, mm-hmm. but also just, it's such a surprising moment, right? Cause yeah. this guy's like, this guy's basically bleeding out on the floor and Joaquin Phoenix is like right next to him after a struggle. What's to put it mildly. <laughs> and you know, the guy just essentially grabs his hand in like a tender moment. And I think some people were really put off by that. They just found it unrealistic or sappy or I don't, I don't even know what word you would use, but I found it kind of moving. It I was just too. like, it was just a very human thing where it's like, you know, this guy that just died, he had his own story, his own life. He's, you know, I'm not sure his mom would be terribly proud of his current position, but he had a life leading up to this moment and doesn't want to die like anybody. And, right. you know, and there was that connection there. And I just, I bought it wholesale. I thought I it was great. I completely agree. So I think that there are the, the, those moments of, of tenderness and of caring almost. Because, I mean, he also, for a majority of the movie, he got, comes home, you know, he lives with his mother. He comes home. And he's got to take care of his mom. He's, you know, he's got to make sure that she doesn't fall in the shower. He has to make sure that she goes to sleep, takes her medicine. And he polishes, there's scenes with him polishing the silverware uh, with both, <laughs> with, with both of them. And, and he just is this normal seeming kind of guy. And I think that if he could just do all of that, I think he would be a lot happier. But unfortunately, his other side of him keeps him in this world where he has to be violent and, 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 and just, you know, a murderer, essentially a killer. So, I mean, of course, you know, we talked about Phoenix. He's the driving force. Um, the streaming services had a good year at the Oscar nominations. <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I, and, but I really hope that this Amazon release doesn't uh, get forgotten. About yeah. I hope all. it doesn't fade away. I mean, I loved Ramsey's we need to talk about Kevin. It was high on my list that year. I think it was number one. Uh, it used to be. And then I, oh, you changed I, it. I pulled a switcheroo um, after that video and audio was found to be untenable. And I think I replaced it with Tree of Life. But yeah, it was my first number one movie before I had a change of heart. And I was kind of catching up on her from her filmography, actually. She did this movie called Morven Collar that came out in 2002. It's this really slow budget but kind of fascinating just what's who is this character and what are they going through i think it takes place in in scotland i think ramsey is is scottish if i'm not mistaken she's a really really accomplished director and i remember just the title sequence of this movie was like okay strap in 
we're in we're in for a movie like this is going to be a movie uh and the title scene alone is worth the price of yeah, admission it's, it's just wonderful. really good yeah good pick ryan thank you clayton so my number four is actually another documentary. I don't wow. think I've ever had one documentary on my list, much <laughs> less two. two. But my number four is Free Solo, um, also called Sweaty Palms the Movie. <laughs> uh, it's the documentary that did just get an Oscar nomination. It might have been the most visible and accessible documentary this year. Uh, it follows the character, the fascinating character of Alex Honnold, uh, Sacramento Resident. Is that right? Yeah, from Sacramento County. Him and I grew up probably 20 minutes away from each other. Uh, Went different sp- d- different directions in your life, though. Yes. Uh, I don't think anybody has Alex Honnold's direction in life. He uh, is basically a giant in what is called kind of the free solo climbing community, of which there's five people in it. Tops. <laughs> people with, you know, the, the, the reductive thing to say is they have a screw loose. Because uh, you have to have a certain amount of insanity coursing through your veins to live this lifestyle. Um, but it follows Alex as he prepares for his, cle- his free climbing ascent of Yosemite's El Capitan Peak. Uh, and th- I found this to be a pretty unforgettable experience at the movies. It's really daringly photographed by the director Jimmy Chin, who's also a friend of Alex. And Jimmy's team did this doc called Meru a couple years ago, which another really dangerous mountain ascension, but with the traditional way with safety tools in place. Uh, but we follow Alex over a year leading up to the climb and then the climb itself, which is, I think arguably the greatest achievement, not only in rock climbing history, but maybe of the 21st century in terms of just pure athleticism. athleticism. I mean, even watching it from the safe confines of whatever seat you're in is this squirm inducing and, unnerving experience to an unusually heightened degree like i mean what this guy is doing to most people is just pure fucking insanity i mean you just you cannot believe what you're watching the any attempt to visualize and put yourself in his shoes while he's doing this is just met with an immediate recoil i mean it's just unthinkable. <laughs> uh, I could probably do it. Uh, yeah, I mean, just give me like you know, six months. Just give me twenty minutes stretching before you know, like. Uh, I mean, the things are right there. You just put your hands up and just sort of pull up. I mean, I don't <laughs> you see just where... pull yourself up several thousand feet. I mean, that's, that that's all it really is. But... I mean, really, what it comes down to is, I think these five people, they really are suicidal. I think <laughs> because they wouldn't they, if they died. But, but I think suicidal implies intent to die. Okay. You know, but they're I, just I, clinically depressed. <laughs> well, 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 what we come to find out about Alex is he's definitely on the spectrum. Oh. Um, it's oh, not. I, I take it all back. Yeah. <laughs> so fuck you, Ryan. Yeah, damn it. <laughs> uh, the movie doesn't explicitly address that, but it's it's pretty clear. And a couple of my friends who are in that field pretty much all but confirmed it. Like, yeah, this guy is either autistic or high functioning Asperger's or, or something. Um, and neurologically, there's actually something really interesting going on in his head. Like his, his fear receptors take much more stimulation than the average person does. So what would terrify you and me would just be, I don't know, a walk on the beach, presumably for him. It takes much more to actually get his, his danger radar in tune, which Wait, is, is kind of fascinating. It's is... in the movie. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. Wow. They, so they, they actually give him an MRI. That. Huh. Yeah, and uh, they have a neurologist come on and be like, this is what's going on, and it's very, very interesting. Um, 
Do they say if all of those other climbers have that, or is that they just, don't? Okay. No, no. I imagine they would. Mm. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me, but right. I, yeah. I think like I definitely wouldn't frame it as suicidal, and that's kind of I think what I people don't. No, no, definitely, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I, the reason I was like defensive about that is because I saw his interview on Jimmy Kimmel, and it was probably the most poorly interviewed thing Kimmel's ever done. Like he just. I mean, this guy is Michael Jordan in front of him. Like, he is in a league of one. And I got the feeling Kimmel was just kind of making the obvious jokes and I think just kind of kind of writing off or just not even truly appreciating what this kid just did. Uh, but anyway, it's like he's a very complex character and kind of a prickly subject because he doesn't, he doesn't really have relationships like most people conventionally do. Uh, but part of the movie's arc is this uh, attempt at relationship with his girlfriend and how his girlfriend deals with all of his daredevil like lifestyle. Um, it's really, I think about, he doesn't even really think about dying. He knows it's an inevitable, it's inevitability for this kind of thing, but it's more about, he wants, he has a goal and he wants to achieve it. And if he were to die, his attitude is like pretty much, well, that sucks. <laughs> but the goal is more important than actually sustainability. So right. He doesn't really meet like the Darwinian, you know, survival <laughs> and reproduction yeah, yeah. paradigm where it's like survival, then give me some kids. Like he just he crosses both those off the lists with a <laughs> a dangerous readiness. Uh, but yeah, see this movie on the biggest screen possible. The entire third act is essentially his climb, and it really is just a mind-boggling experience to go through. Wow, great free solo. I've I've heard I've heard mm -hmm. very good things about it. Yeah, it's it's go on. Okay. <laughs> uh, my number four is actually now that I think about it, another movie that came out in the first part of the year, uh, and it was at the top of my or near the top of my list for a very long time, uh, and it's Annihilation. Mm. So when I think of this film, the first thing that stands out is the visuals and the special effects. Yeah, and I think most of that is the work of Alex Garland, who needs to be in that same conversation, I think, whose works demand to be seen no matter what. Um, Natalie Portman is in this movie. She There's an all-star cast, another uh, female-centric movie. There was a lot of them that were very good this year, Yeah, uh, including uh, Tessa Thompson, Jennifer Jason Leigh. Uh, they all sort of go into this wild world uh, beyond what they're naming the Shimmer which is sort of an unexplained alien-like phenomena that's occurring on Earth. They've sent a lot of soldiers, the government that is, sent a lot of soldiers to go in and just kind of investigate it and see what's what it's all about. But uh, every single one of them has not returned except for one, uh, and that's uh, Natalie Portman's husband in the film, Oscar Isaac. Yeah. Um, so he comes home after being presumed dead, but she notices that he's definitely not himself. Um, and so after a medical episode, they're in an ambulance, they get shuffled into a van and they get taken to the shimmer, him to recuperate. And she decides that she wants to go and sort of see what's in there. And sort of what follows is both uh, horrific and uh, beautiful uh, in, in contrast, really. Mm -hmm. And um, and really sort of the, we start to learn as they do what has happened to a lot of the other groups that have gone in through home videos that were shot a home videos like handheld cameras they went in to check out what's going on and 
we start to see the weird, crazy stuff that was going on in the Shimmer. Right. Um, the Shimmer itself is a presence that sort of looms large over the entire story. It's not really explained in scientific terms what it Which is. Which I don't even think they could do anyway. Uh, yeah, it's just sort of, it is what it is. It's the Shimmer, and you sort it's, of accept it and move on. Yeah, it's and like, that's partly why they're going in, is to figure it out. Exactly. But there's a beauty to it, I think. But it's not without its horrors. Mm-hmm. Um, because of what the the shimmer is does with light i think and also to the people for the the people who are in it it really allows for garland and his vfx team that won the oscar for ex machina right to basically bring that weird world inside the shimmer to life in these just beautiful ways and horrific also yeah um they probably won't win. They well, they won't win another Oscar. But there's some images in this film that will stay with you for a very long time. Yeah. Um, and it seems like Garland's his playground is like this sci-fi with a thinking man's edge. It's not just a straightforward. You're not just going to get a straightforward sci-fi story. There's going to definitely be elements in, right. in Ex Machina and in this film that are very much very high concept sort of thing. Even his, even his experience as a writer was in that same yeah, area. Yeah. I mean, and, and this film is like, it, it's set in this sci-fi situation, but it's all about sort of battling with our own internal demons. Right, really. Right. And really it's, it's depicted brilliantly in one of the final sequences inside a lighthouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lighthouse is where they think the shimmer is originating from. Uh, it sort of needs to be seen. I can't, I don't really want to describe it, but maybe we'll get into it a little bit in our our companion. Oh, piece. I, we might. But I think. But it basically, the the main takeaway is that it depicts getting in your own way. So spot on. <laughs> right. It's just it's something special. What would so, it be like to walk around with a mirror glued to you all? Yeah. Day? So the ending, I think, hints at a possible sequel because it's only the first it's actually a book it's a based book. on a book, book so, series yeah but it's, it's the, sort of the first one but I don't think the box office numbers will mm. I think it'll keep it as a one-off um, mm. which is fine yeah uh, but there's an element at the end just at the very very end because um, I actually saw a screening for this film Casey and I saw a screening of this actually not I think it was oh god it was in theaters for a week for a second yeah it was and then and, and then I think there's a Netflix or somebody bought the streaming rights to it and they just yanked it out of theaters there was immediately. no well I think that was the plan all along was okay. there was no international release it was right, just going to get it. released internationally on Netflix exactly yeah and now you can watch it on Prime and on Hulu uh-huh. <laughs> um, but I mean yeah so there but the the end it was definitely a different movie when we saw it the first time it was when we saw it in the completed film because that the ending that they had that they had was either a little bit more clear or it was just different altogether. So I really, really liked what they did um, mm-hmm. with the very, very end, like the last couple shots, I think. So uh, good job, Alex Garland. Uh, big ups to you. Number four, Annihilation. Yeah, I liked Annihilation. I kind of went into it maybe with expectations a little too high because Ex Machina was my number one film of 2015, and I think it's a masterpiece. And uh, so it didn't quite meet my expectations, like just in terms of being like a satisfying and complete movie experience. But man, there are some touches in this movie that are very, very hard to shake. That just, music too, the just mu- uh, the score, yeah, the score, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The just score hammers you. Yeah, there's yeah. there's some really conceptually dazzling and, in the same token, terrifying sequences in this movie. So I'm fully aboard your fully annihilation. Board. All right, my number three. Uh, Ryan, I need you to brace yourself. I'm ready. Because 
it's about to get seriously, seriously fucking mainstream. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> My number three is Bumblebee. Whoa! <laughs> For the first time since I've been making lists. What? The name Michael Bay is attached to one of my picks. That's crazy. It finally happened. I mean, you and I are walking into this movie. I'm assuming you've seen it. Nope. No. Okay. Probably with a completely different head on our shoulders. I, I would have had I did had I seen it. <laughs> had I had I gone to it. Yes. 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 So I have two things to say to Paramount to Paramount Studios who bankrolled this film and all the other live action Transformers movie. The first thing is. Thank you. <laughs> the second thing is, was that so goddamn hard? <laughs> uh, so Ryan, I, I'm gonna blow your mind right now, but blow apparently, it, the key, it. apparently the key to making a good Transformers film, oh, sorry, is to take Michael Bay out of the director's oh, chair. Oh man, like, yeah. like, who knew, Ryan? Who knew? <laughs> there have been so many films that you could probably make that argument with. <laughs> This is not the first one of those films. Right. Yes. I would imagine. He's so, very, very tunnel vision. But yeah, go ahead. All right. Yeah. Give me your give me your spiel. So Travis Knight of Kubo and the Two Strings takes over here and for me, absolutely crushes it. It's a period piece set in the eighties, already a brilliant start for Transformers fans. It has real characters. These characters have arcs. It's got a huge heart. It's kind of got a uh, an E.T. meets the Iron Giant kind of plot going to it. Uh, it's got a fantastic soundtrack, 80s soundtrack primarily, but it goes a little bit earlier sometimes. It's got the original Transformer character designs. A fan like me just ate it up. It's got a ton of callbacks to the original animated series left and right. I could go on and on, but crucially though, it's got my girl, Miss mm. Haley Steinfeld, Haley. in the starring role. Wow. I'm on the record as saying... I'm going to say it every time she comes up. If she gets the right roles, she's the next Meryl Streep. I still stand behind that. She is fantastic. Knows how to really craft every character to just what the story needs. Always authentic. Uh, It's a very shrewd casting choice putting her in the role. She's knocked me out ever since True Grit eight years ago. Oh, she's great. Yeah. uh, I just really like her, Ryan. (laughs) I can tell. Yeah, yeah. She's a... She's a winner to me. Okay. Uh, so this whole film, I just had this kind of Cheshire cat like grin on my face because they did it. They finally made a good Transformers film. And I was so cynical and jaded walking in. Travis Knight was the only thing that got me there because that dude makes a living out of breathing life into things that were previously dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was a big stop motion guy. So that is basically his entire day-to-day experience. Uh, he does an amazing job. Um, it was like being 10 years old again, watching a movie oh. for me. It was one of those experiences That's where great. I was like, I am just, I was just giddy uh, for those just weary about seeing another Transformers movie. And I haven't sold it yet. I'm just going to tell you that it came out a week before Christmas in 2018. And it's a minor Christmas miracle. <laughs> the miracle is named Bumblebee. Wow. And you should see it. Okay. I saw it twice in the theater. Man. Can you recover from that, Ryan? I mean, I'm going to have to. The be- list must go on. Because we're also going to get pretty mainstream. Not that mine hasn't been, but a little bit more mainstream. Than that? Well, sort of. That's pretty mainstream. It's pretty mainstream. 
Um, but yeah, we are actually. Okay. I'm going to tell you that my third best film of the year and up until three weeks ago was my number one film of the year. Okay. Mission Impossible Fallout. Oh God, thank you. I thought you. Were, I thought you were going to say Infinity War, and I was about to leave. So, please, I'm... I would just do that to throw you. No, no, it's actually Mission Impossible Fallout. Good pick, and Ryan. I'm so reason, happy you brought this up. I really am. The only reason this is, film is on here is because it's a masterpiece. <laughs> it's really fucking it's good. Really, it's. Oh, it's really fucking good. I don't know why I left <laughs> I it know. off. Now that you brought, I, like, I thought about it. I remembered it. I knew it was amazing when I was watching it, but I, I don't know. I couldn't squeeze it in. But yeah, thank you for squeezing it. Oh in yeah. That. So okay. So I actually think, I mean, what this franchise and what this film specifically has been able to do in terms of just reinventing itself and upping the ante for twenty plus years is just nothing short of amazing and just sort of kind of like the the in, in for a sports term like just kind of the run that the New England Patriots are on it's just like we're never going to see this again like this type of just sort of marriage between this giant action star for years and years and years just sort of always getting better too like seemingly just getting better and better and better it's just incredible i mean this is the first time that they actually continued the story from a previous film every other film and these Maybe just had some returning characters and things like that. I mean, they had, they've made billions of dollars just having like one-off stories and having some, you know, they always have the same sort of good guy team, but it's always a different villain and they have elements of like different villains and stuff like that. But this one, it's a similar villain as the last one and they bring in some other things as well. Um, But honestly, and I don't know if maybe it's a little unfair, but learning about some of the behind the scenes stuff a little bit. I mean, has really just enhanced my enjoyment of this. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to tell you one story. I'll tell you one later. So Christopher McQuarrie, who directed this film and wrote it, and his writing partner, Tom Cruise, right? Okay. So they came up with the idea for the stunt where his character of Ethan Hawke flies a helicopter. Ethan Hawke. Sorry, Ethan Hunt. <laughs> excuse me. So, well, can we, you imagine? We are in the middle of the Hawkesons. Yeah. Or was it the Hawkening? That's the term I've heard. Oh. It, it was like... His version of the reconnaissance. He never went away, though. But anyway, yeah. anyway, anyway, go ahead. All right. I digress. So, okay, so Cruz decides that he wants to fly the helicopter himself in the movie. Okay, as he, as he's wont to do because he's he's either gone clear or is so <laughs> filled with thetans that it just it's messing with his brain. So right, he doesn't fear death. He, no, he becomes death. Yes. So the flight school tells him that even if he flies eight hours a day, he won't have enough hours before they have to film the stunt. <laughs> So Cruz literally scoffs and says, well, what about all the other hours in the day? And trains for 16 hours a day and becomes a helicopter pilot in like half the time. My God. And is actually the one flying the helicopter at the end of the movie. Incredible. Like, it's just... You brought up going clear. I respect the hell out of Tom Cruise. Oh, as As, a filmmaker? As a movie star. As a filmmaker. This dude has never phoned in anything no in his 30 plus year career no you can look at him doing just being incredible in every single role that he's had like you said just spanning all this stuff so it's probably the most for me the most fun use of the masks and the trickery i think um the the cnn trick in the beginning i thought it's good yeah i mean honestly that was the reason why i was like i need to see this movie again because i need to see i need to experience that again 
Uh, the story is a classic espionage as it goes, but it has some. I mean, it's almost immaterial, though, right? Oh yeah. Like I mean, we're kind of we kind of know why we're going into this movie now. Yes. Like the Brian De Palma days are long. They're gone. gone. Yeah. There's but, not going to take much that surprises us anymore with this stuff. There's some, but there's actually some darker elements in play here. I think they they've sort of upped the ante a little bit. There's a lot of nuclear talk, and there's, you know, lots of just sort of different government industry stuff going on. It's really, yeah, it's great. And you actually, because I, I went back in our text messages and I went back and you said it was the best action movie since Fury Road. Do you still stand by that fact? Yeah. I have a hard time arguing with you. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I have not a scintilla of doubt. It's incredibly rewatchable. I saw it three times in the theaters. I've already watched it once or twice at home. Um, but it's as fresh and as interesting as anything Tom Cruise has done in his career. I think it's the it's the stuff that keeps him young, really. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll, I'll yeah I'll shape that a little bit more because okay. I, I see a distinction between what Mission Impossible and Fury Road is, and what something like The Raid is. You know, where it's right. like a martial arts extravaganza because those those raid movies and there was another movie that came out this year called The Night Comes for Us, which is in the same kind of mold. I, I don't know how you even compare Mission Impossible to those movies because they're just so overwhelmingly choreographed and visceral and violent. It's like it's kind of, you know, it's it's like comparing the, the Grammys and the Oscars. It's yeah, like, you would never like do, yeah, you would never where do you be, even go with that. Yeah, you, 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 you would never confuse the raid with Mission but, Impossible, but yeah. they are still they have elements that are just mm-hmm. great and fun in their own in their own right really yeah i mean even the side characters in this film get in on it i mean harry harry henry cavill's mustache perfectly cast as a rogue <laughs> cia agent helping them out um, i was i we were talking a little bit before and i bought a new tv uh, over a little after christmas and one of the first things i was able to actually turn on in like beautiful 4k was justice league and oh man, does his mustache stand out in 4K? 4K will never be a friend to anybody on screen. It is, but that's probably the mortal enemy. But them covering the mustache with CGI, it is prominent there. So it was really that was really funny. To well, see. apparently, also there's a shot in Justice League where the cyborgs' characters blue booties are visible in an all CG shot that they forgot to comp out. So. That should show you what level that movie's on. Oh, that movie is is great. (laughs) But I think it's, like I said, it was literally my number one film of the year before I saw my top two in really in consecutive days. So number three, Mission Impossible Fallout, an unforgettable action everything, and it's a goddamn masterpiece, and I'll stand by it. (laughs) It I'll stand by it. It's a goddamn action masterpiece. I totally agree. Uh, Man. Wish I could have tried to. Wish I could have got it on there. It's really, it's really <laughs> starting to piss me off now because I definitely considered it, but I don't know. Just maybe the recency just, bias got me. Yeah, and I think you know that happens. That happens. That definitely happens. For I sure. mean, and the the Dark Knight comparisons, like the staging there with mm-hmm. you know the, uh, the the van chase and uh, the kidnapping element, so much like that. Dark Knight has become such a template for movies going forward. It's really right. staggering when you see the. Just the reach it's had, you know, yeah, with this kind some... of filming these things, just very, very gritty, visceral, all that stuff. You yeah, that's no, great. Excellent selection. We know how good the Dark Knight is, man. But it wouldn't be a McShank <laughs> podcast without a Christopher Nolan. Uh, and, and a reminder fest. that only one of us had it as their favorite right. film you in 2008. What? You know what? <laughs> well, Ryan, my number two. Uh, so I agreed to the letter with everything you said about the favorite. And the one quibble I have with you is. I think you're seriously fucking underrating it. <laughs> it's uh, it's number two on my list. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, 
this movie for me, it's this is a field day for cinephiles. This this movie is kind of, it's like a this movie is what you would call a five tool player in baseball oh, to yeah. me. Um, it's bar none for me the best and the funniest script of the year. I was laughing my way through this entire movie. I mean, there's obviously some serious shit happening from time to time, mm-hmm. but my god, this is like if you took the characters from His Girl Friday, you dip them <laughs> in rat poison. <laughs> And then you fed him a crumpet, you know, like the, the dialogue here is so like razor sharp. You could like barricade a trench in the first world war with it. This is some cutting shit. Like just the back and forth, the interplay constantly people just cutting each other down with little, little barbs, you know, like I just ate this movie up. Um, I'll try not to cover the same ground you did, but watching the triangulations of Rachel Weiss and Emma Stone as they try to outmaneuver each other. Yeah for power in the English monarchy is just delightful. Um, Olivia Coleman, you alluded to this already. My pick for not just the best female performance of the year, but the best performance of the year. Clayton, God damn it, man. <laughs> Don't ruin the next show. <laughs> I, I had to. I mean, yeah. I'll, no, I'll, it's, no, it's, I'll, it's, I'll focus on the, I'll spotlight some lesser, some smaller characters on the next I show. T- I, I walked out of that film and I said, <laughs> she's going to win an Academy Award. I was like, yeah. the, everybody was great. But she was she is so multi layered. Yeah, you know, from scene to scene, she's almost a different character. Really accomplished stuff. Um, yeah, this is Greek director Yorgos Lanthimos's best, biggest, and most accessible film to date for sure. And I'm not sure how he did it without compromising his usual Weirdness. idiosyncratic <laughs> shit and yeah. just his unique lens for viewing the world. Because this guy's movies are unlike any other movie you ever see. Like the characters always live in this world with very bizarre rules and the world is somehow usually very isolated with not a lot of the outside ever creeping in. Um, so it's almost like this, this, this hotbed or the science experiment of characters and weird rules living out their lives. Um, all his, all his, all his hallmarks are here surprisingly. And they're all just for me, thrillingly realized it's just, it's a must see movie. And Oh yeah. It also has a duck race in it. So <laughs> yeah. there's that. It's and completely out of left field which, but but also sort of expected in a way <laughs> like a weird thing where you walk out of it any other movie that's got a weird slow motion duck race in it we'd go what the fuck was that but in Lanthimos it's like oh yeah no it makes perfect sense why wouldn't there be a duck why race why wouldn't in there movie? be a duck race you know what actually it brought up a movie that is a horrible movie and nobody else I imagine on planet earth made this connection but did you ever see Prince of Persia no, I didn't. <laughs> well, I tell you, I did. I snuck into that movie and yeah. still hated it. Oh. So, but the reason I bring it up yeah. is that the only good the only good part about that movie was there was an ostrich race in it mm. <laughs> that people actually race them like you know they're thoroughbreds or whatever. Jeez. And I was like, duck race, ostrich race, a a, a, so. a, a tenuous connection <laughs> between movies worlds apart. But I don't know. I thought of it anyway for some reason. I think reason. it's weird in like the the, the Lanthiverse. You can every every animal that I see in the Lanthimos movie, I just assume is somebody who's died from the lobster. <laughs> yeah, like it's right. just like you know. Yeah, I just yeah, yeah. I just assume that that has been that that technology or that ability has been able to go on for years. Yeah, it's permeated the rest of the world everywhere in all time periods. Yeah. It's like every every animal mm-hmm. is just a former dead, unfulfilled human. <laughs> yeah. Favorite is my number two. So my number two, that's a very good pick. Mm-hmm. My number two, um, 
I, I I'm not going to I I ha, I have to commit to a one and two. Yeah. Because I can't. I'm in the same boat. I can't do a Mike Baroga RIP, but <laughs> blasphemy. If I could do a one A one B. Yeah, this would be a year for it. Yes. I feel the same way. So I, yeah, and it's a weird thing because like I went back and forth. I struggled with it, and it's like this is supposed to be fun, but I was like. Well, what am I? What am I doing in this movie? In this what's movie, the this? criteria? How do I do this? Yeah, and so and and so when it when it needed to be crystallized, when it needed to be in that particular moment, this film landed at number two, but it very well could have been number one for me. I think I actually know what your number one is, but we'll get to that later. Mm-hmm. So my number two is if Beale Street could talk. Hmm. Uh, Barry Jenkins worthy follow up to Moonlight. Yes. Um, really the best I think adjective i can use to describe this film is intimate yeah the conversations the drama the slices of life it all feels almost like you shouldn't be there really almost yeah. sort of you feel like you're intruding almost on on these things it's it's a good way to look at it yeah yeah he, he's a such a unique filmmaker because he did this in in moonlight also but he kind of lets his actors act which i think is is not really something you see a lot these days like he'll just sort of stick the camera, you know, with the two shot or, or people. And then he'll sort of subtly make a move one way back and forth. Um, but he's just kind of letting the scene play out. And I think that kind of adds to that intimacy is that sort of like you're watching two people back, go back and forth. Um, even if the topic isn't really that scintillating, <laughs> but um, the film opens with a quote uh, that's basically in the book of the same name by James Baldwin, mm-hmm. and it's considered a, a modern classic. I unfortunately didn't, haven't had a chance to read it, but the quote is, um, Beale Street is a street in New Orleans where my father, where Louis Armstrong and the jazz were born. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every that, black yeah. person born in America was born on Beale Street, born in the black neighborhood of some American city, whether in Jackson, Mississippi, or in Harlem, New York. Beale Street is our legacy. So when you see a title card like that and you watch this film, you realize you're watching something that is so specific to this particular family, but also so universal in the struggles that our main character is facing. It's a beautiful sentiment in the movie. And it sort of, again, is playing with this big and small different things happening in one sort of film. So the film stars um, Stephen James, who had a, a great year with this and also uh, was fantastic in the Amazon show Homecoming with Julia okay. Roberts. He was tremendous. So he, he plays a character named Fonny, who's a young and intrepid black man who falls in love with his childhood best friend, Tish. Before getting arrested for a crime, there's no way he could have committed. So Tish is played by Kiki Lane, and she spends a lot of the film trying to prove Fonny's innocence while also helping her own family while working and also being pregnant with Fonny's baby. So one of the reasons that I think this film is so high on my list is something that I actually rarely had seen, if at all, if ever. Probably the most loving family dynamic I can remember seeing on screen. Oh yeah, really supportive, tight-knit yeah. family, yeah. So they're, they're, it's they're to see that once in a while. Because they're, they're, they're within this particular family. I'm not talking about Fonny's family. No, that's, that's a, a much whole, different yeah, story. Whole other thing. Yeah. Uh, but there could have really been high drama when Tish has to reveal to her family, because she's young, she's a teenager in this, in this particular moment, when she's pregnant with Fonny's baby, but Jenkins builds the drama to a little bit to make you think that there's going to be some sort of big blow-up but relieves it when Tish's mother, who's played by Regina King, gets uh, the good cognac down from the uh, cupboard 
which would be the first thing I do for my pregnant daughter. Yeah. But I love the scent of it. I kind of thought everybody else was going to drink, but nope, she had some too. Um, but she's just showered with love by her father and her sister and uh, Regina King and the father share a sensual dance a little bit later on as well. Um, the cinematography is absolutely stunning. Oh, so good. I've heard that people, I heard people actually leaving when, and they were like, Oh, is that shot on iPhone portrait mode? And it's like, it's not, I mean, he's not, they're not wrong. It's sort of, I understand the joke, but I think that it really just the beauty of the film. It's so warm. Yeah. And inviting. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. Vibrant. And the, but he makes great use of like tight spaces, I think. Cause there's all, you know, the, 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 the house they live in is a small little apartment. Fonny's house is a tiny little area, basically. And there's, you know, even in the prisons, there's, so he makes this great use of close-up and of just really making the, the, the small sort of seem big. I mean, heartbreakingly beautiful score. That hit me, Nichols Patel's score hit me as soon as it, as those strings kick in in that first scene. I was like, I'm on, I'm on board. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in. Um, Would that be your best score of the year? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, th- th- this film again, a one A, one B, but I mean, really, it was it was my number one movie of the year until the very next day when I saw my number one. So, um, <laughs> All right. so yeah, if Beale Street could talk, I it's a crime mm-hmm. that this movie didn't get nominated over Vice. Oh, just I, saying, one hundred fifty so, million percent, yes, yes, yeah, uh, yeah. I I really like this movie too, and. I had a really tough time winnowing down my list this year. Like I think I told you, I might. Have, I started with twenty four potential movies, yeah. to make my top ten list out of the whatever seventy plus I saw this year, and I really like Beale Street. I think I like I, I, I put Moonlight ahead of it, um, but I was fortunate enough to see Beale Street pre release, and Barry Jenkins was also there to talk about it after. Tumbleberry. And and the reason I bring that up <laughs> is because he mentioned something that I found fascinating like after the movie was was made and critics started to kind of weigh in and stuff he actually had a critic i'm not sure if he messaged him directly or maybe he just read about it in the review or something but this critic was no i don't know who it is but somebody really established in old school and he said this might be the first time in film history that there has been a point of view shot from a black man looking at a white authority figure Hmm. Do you remember what scene I'm talking about? Is it the in, 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 the, in the, the grocery store? In the grocery right? store. Yeah, 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 yeah. There was a full-on POV shot from Fonny's perspective, looking at this this white police officer, and it's just one of those things where it could explode at any minute and become one of those awful stories we see on the news all the time. Um, but just the, the framing of it and the way that the the white character is just the, his look it could just burn the camera lens down. It's so full of, you know, of hatred. Just like, just, he's thinking, just do anything, just do anything. And then it's on, you know, like he's looking for any kind of any reason, reason to do exactly reason to do something. But that little factoid, I just found to be mind blowing. I mean, cause it's, 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 it's a point of view from, um, from the perspective of African Americans that is kind of profound because we see all these movies admonishing racism and giving us the brutal racial history. But I don't think we've ever quite had that shot before where it really puts us directly in the shoes of somebody going through it. You know, so I, that I found that to be incredibly interesting. I, that is. And I think it's, it has to do a lot with we're a little bit as a society, I think more aware of these interactions. Um, I think 
people in the black community have been dealing with it, like the right. film says, yeah. forever. I mean, it's just, it, it's it's sort of, unfortunately, the thing that was going on in the 60s and 70s is the same shit that's going on today. We can, it's just way more visible now. So know? yeah, so I, so I think that we have that visibility, which means that when you, because they probably didn't make films like this you know at any point most people would now yes. yeah you know now's the only time that i feel like it's timely or, or that it's sort of i guess quote unquote okay to do so um and so that's probably why probably adding to the whole fact of why you never see that sort of thing because this type of movie and this, the movie that tackles these these issues just was, was never made before until now so mm-hmm. um so yeah so that's that that is definitely a very interesting uh point of view and i never even would have uh, thought about that so yeah uh thank you barry jenkins thank you barry jenkins for enlightening yeah. us and giving us something else to watch that floored us once again mm-hmm. uh are we down to our number one already i think we are our, our number our 11th number one film oh, man <laughs> You say already like it hasn't already been an hour and a half. So <laughs> <laughs> it, it's uh, that it is has, yeah yeah no, that's seconds in podcast oh, speed. Yeah, that's true. So so my number one. So I actually saw it back to back with Beale Street on consecutive days, and so the questions like what is the best film ever made and what is the best film you've ever seen? They're ridiculous questions, and they get more ridiculous with each movie you see and each movie year that you go through, but. But as the credits splashed onto the screen for Roma, I actually asked myself this question, like, what would the greatest film ever made look like? And no movie, of course, can really answer that question. But if we had to settle on Roma until the answer got here, we could do far worse. (laughs) Wow. Um, Big words. Roma has kind of the gritty realism of Children of Men and the humanistic kind of coming-of-age insights that Koran's other classics, um, like Itu Mama Tambien, really get at. Um, I think this is probably... I haven't seen all of his movies, but I'd say this is his third masterwork. Um, but this is, this is the first one to really take an autobiographical lens at his own life. Uh, Koran, who is essentially doing everything mm-hmm. behind the camera, I wouldn't be surprised if he was making... Was, was, was making craft service, yeah, <laughs> and just feeding it to all the actors in between takes. Um, I brought pizza. <laughs> yeah, who wants a hot dog? <laughs> uh, he's just crafted this masterfully rich, dramatic love letter to his childhood maid and caretaker, who's here approximated by first-time actress. Let's see, let's see if I can get her name right. Yolitza Aparicio. Oh. I, I don't Luca anticipate Guardino. <laughs> Guardino Apricio. <laughs> I don't anticipate seeing her in many more movies and maybe any movie no, after this because yeah. she's a non-actress and only did this because it somehow fit into her schedule and she had two or three months of free time. Uh, but if this is the only film of her career, I think she can safely hang them up. Uh, it's like playing one day in the major leagues and getting sent back down to the minors. But that day in the major le- in the major leagues, you're a part of a perfect game effort. <laughs> it's like not the career I was hoping for, but not bad either. Yeah. Um, She's Maria Falconetti from <laughs> passion. Of that Park. is a great, great callback. And I totally agree. Uh, so I mean, what do you talk about first in this movie? The cinematography, just the, the riot sequence based on a real historical event in Mexico, the, the hospital sequence, the one the, the long take on the beach, 
this it's just all poetry in motion and it culminated at least for me and just to an overwhelming emotional experience emotional experience um my friend uh ruel and i saw this actually we had just seen beale street before mm-hmm. and so it was two amazing movies back to back um and i saw this one also before the netflix release and when the credits rolled it was really hard to encapsulate the vibe like nobody got up nobody even made a sound and just sat through the entire credits like just slack jawed nobody got up like we all just sat through it and it was you could hear a pin drop it was just a really ooh just one of those movie experiences you just kind of hoped you're going to get every time you walk in but usually never get um, so it's not, it, as of this podcast taping, it's garnered 10 Oscar nominations along with the favorite. And we could potentially be saying Netflix made the best picture of the year, which I'm not entirely comfor- comfortable with yeah, yet. Yeah, I don't think Hollywood um, is either. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's like Netflix in name only. Like this is an yeah. Alfonso Cuaron movie. I don't care what anybody else says. It's a weird thing, but I think that it, it actually detracts from it for me. Mm-hmm. It lessens the. Did you see it in the theater? I did. Okay. Yeah. Um, are you done? I'm sorry. I don't. I. I, I was I, almost done. Okay. Like, go ahead. Well, yeah, finish yeah. up. Finish um, up. So while it's not exactly an out of left field pick for me this year, it's getting no. blasted. It's going to be a huge award consideration. But for me, it could just be nothing other than Roma. I mean, because when you finish a movie, the feeling that you have like deep inside of you just says it all. And this movie's a masterpiece. Okay. Um, I did see it in the theaters. Mm. I do think the Netflix thing is a little, it's weird. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't understand why they made it. Like, I understand Mm. why he made it. Yeah. I don't get why they decided to, or how how he was even able to make that. Did he, was he involved in that decision? I don't feel like he would want people Mm. seeing it like where they're distracted by their phones or they're having Mm. it on in the background while they're doing something else. It's just a Mm. very weird, like, I think I was able to I was able to to get that to extract that away from the experience. I mean, in general, yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, I, I, but I think, but the whole yeah. the whole phenomenon is weird because this is the first time that a real filmmaker has put out something Oscar worthy that landed on a streaming platform. Mm-hmm. You know, and it did get a little theatrical release, but yeah. just pittance. You know, like mm-hmm. it, this movie deserves to be. They they need to build a bigger IMAX screen for this movie. Like it needs to be super IMAX or whatever the the fuck they're gonna call it. Like right. writ large is the only way to experience this and to get anything out of it because anything smaller than that is, what's the point? Yeah, and it's it's an odd choice for it. I mean, not not for your number one, yeah. but I mean, it's what, an odd... was that what you were thinking? What that that was that was gonna be my number one? Yeah, okay. it was okay. Um, but uh, let me ask you this: mm-hmm. what I forget where was Boyhood on your list? The year Boyhood. That it came out. I mean, was it like you can say like top five or like was it? Like, I want to say it was, it was on your list, seven, though, right? Yeah, six, six or seven. It was on your list, though. Yeah, right. Is this like Boyhood to you? Yeah. Okay. It is. Um, because just in this, just in the sense of like the slice of lifeness, and mm-hmm. I think that, uh, but but when you extract, I mean, for Boyhood, like when you extract what actually went into the filmmaking of it, you're kind of mm-hmm. I was I was sort of left like, oh really? That's kind of it. Mm-hmm. Um. And unfortunately, that's how I felt with Roma too. Listen, you're not the first person I heard uh, enunciate that. I didn't. I, I don't know. If no, I, just, no, I know. If people, I just I didn't definitely know get people. It. I know people that didn't respond to it emotionally at all. I was ready to love it. Uh-huh. I was ready to go in and just and just be like, take Alfonso, take right. me away. Like, right. you know, it's so funny you bring up Boyhood because it's such a great, 
great corollary to this movie. Yeah. I think if you're on board for one of them, you'll be on board for both. Absolutely. Yeah. And I just don't know if that type of film resonates mm. with me specifically. Mm. Yeah. And I, I, you know, because of this film, it's meandering in a good way. Mm-hmm. It's sort of, it doesn't really have a plot. It does, mm. but it yeah. just sort of is like, here's this section of people living yeah. in this town in this particular time period. And that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I will say there are two amazing, amazing moments in it mm-hmm. as well. I, I got to the, the basically everything from the riot mm-hmm. to the, to the hospital scene. Yeah. And I went, Oh, <laughs> so this is what this is. And I kind of thought it was going to, I was ready. I was like, okay, I thought it was going to sort of turn on its axis and be like, okay, and we're doing this really super emotional thing now. Cool. And it just, it never quite did that again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but my wife and I were talking about it. We've continued to talk about it over the months after we saw it. Yeah. But it was like, I cannot, we cannot find a way where he did not put actual children in danger in most of that movie. Mm. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm talking about the, 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 the sequence at the shore how did it's all one shot how do you not almost drown kids i mean not to get this particular not, shot not not to pull the uh the, the braggadocia card again okay please but koran was at a q a after i saw roma too oh, really? uh, no i would and, love and, to and he and he, talk about he, he talked about it okay yeah i mean he also talks about know. it in the uh hollywood reporter roundtable that just came out which okay. is a good watch yeah in of itself but so the uh they basically they had one shot at it. If they couldn't get the shot that he was gonna have to change the movie. Um, so <laughs> no pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Like he said, the movie would have literally changed if they couldn't, if he didn't feel comfortable getting With the that. shot. Okay. So, I mean, the camera work is a little more straightforward. They literally built a dock out into the ocean. Right. And that was the, the track for, yeah. the, for the, for the tracking that, shot. Yeah. That I, mean, I, I can right? pick up on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, everything else was controlled. Like it, it, they had, he is like he is so so attentive to that kind of kind of detail, and you'd never get like a. Did you ever read what what happened with Twilight Zone the movie back in the day, where like mm-hmm. actual actors got decapitated in it and stuff from a Lovely. from just like a uh, a malfunction with a helicopter. Oh my god! Like yeah, I mean it almost yeah. ruined. Um, I forgot who the director John Lannis's John career. Yeah, um, I know who directed it, but I've never yeah, seen yeah, it. yeah yeah I've never seen it either. Yeah. I, I I've just read about it and I I can't go there. Uh, but yeah, like. Like like Quran, he he didn't divulge all of his secrets, you know. Um, but Spike Lee actually asked him this very question in the roundtable. He was like, "How did you get that beat shot?" You know, and I think part of the magic is looking at him and trusting that this this man and his insane, loving you know slice of humanism he has displayed here just just figured it out. Like mm-hmm. he he did it. Um, he said there was never at any time that anybody was in danger. So he had it controlled, but it is just a shocking, shocking oh, yeah. sleight of hand. I mean, because it looks perilous while you're watching it. Um, I mean, of course, the, the, the finale of it leads up to what we see in the poster. Um, just expertly, oh God, just oh, the staging of it. The <laughs> staging of it makes me want to cry right now. Um, Keep it together. I know. I'm turning into a little bitch and we're yeah. almost done with the podcast. Uh, but... Yeah, I mean, I know people who didn't connect to this movie at all emotionally, and I, I can get that because I think getting back to my my setup for this, like what would the greatest film ever made look like? Um, I think for for me, it's the film that is able to draw the most profound and epic and uh, just 
you know, full of wisdom moments out of um, the smallest details, you know, like the mundane. I mean, that's what I loved about Boyhood. It was, I saw these moments in it that should just be nothing on the script, you know. But when I really kind of looked inside myself after, it was, this is like the stuff of life. I mean, was it John Lennon famously said, you know, life is what's happening when you're making other plans. It's it's kind of like, this is the stuff of life, and this is the stuff of this person's life. And the way he's able to kind of extrapolate that, for me at least, to these kind of profound statements about this human experience we're all involved in, it it makes the case for me. Like, it's 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 that accomplished. I wish What's I your number one, Ryan? <laughs> Man, had I known it was going to be that passionate. <laughs> oh, boy. Avengers Infinity War. Okay, well... <laughs> Oh, look before you leave. Okay. <laughs> Clayton, my number one movie. Yes. Ten years ago. Okay, let's let's wind the clocks back. Not a year. Ten We're, years. 2009. Or so 2008. I, the films of 2008. Okay. I sat in a chair very similar to the one I'm sitting in. Spoke into the exact same microphone as we huddled around my old Right, the exact same microphone. in Burbank. Yeah. yeah, with the exact same setup. Yeah. And I, I sat there... I had a choice to make, Clayton. You did have a choice to make. I could choose the film with the emotional powerhouse that was a tad Oscar Beatty, or I could choose the action film with the comic book character in its lead. Mm-hmm. You know, my choice has been long debated, uh, <laughs> even retconned into existence by myself at various points. The thing points. is, they were two great choices, and I've always acknowledged True. that. True. I had a similar choice this year. Okay. And I just couldn't bring myself to make the same mistake again. Okay. So my number one film of the year of our Lord, 2018, is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. <laughs> I Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen it? Yeah. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Like, one thought that kept coming up wow. as, as I watched it. One thought as I, as, I, as I saw it was, this is just effortlessly cool. Like, wow. Yeah. The costumes are cool. The animation is fucking rad. The story is cool. It's just cool, cool, cool. It's everything that is missing from every single movie in this genre. <laughs> it, it doesn't lack in anything. It doesn't lack in any raw emotion that you're looking for from a film in this genre and from film in general. Is it funny? Yes, it's hilarious. Does it have heart? A bunch of it. Is it dramatic at every turn? Is there action? It's some of the best this side of Fallout. Now, it cheats a little bit because it's animated. And they're basically able to just create anything that they want, really. What are physics? Who cares, you know? But they they not only sort of uh, use that power, but they have a responsibility. See what I did there? And they take it to the extreme. God, God damn it. So... Kingpin, he's literally larger than life and takes up half the screen whenever he's on it. <laughs> right. The different universes that the, the Spider-Men and women all come from are all unique and could have hosted a film on their own. It just is bursting with color and life in a way that no other comic book film ever could have. Mm-hmm. The voice cast is unprecedented with the likes of Mahershala Ali, John Mulaney, your girl Haley Steinfeld, Jake mm-hmm. Johnson, Brian Tyree Henry, Zoe Kravitz, and Nicolas Cage. Yeah. It's a who's who. Of, he was the noirish one, right? He was, yeah. yeah. It's a, just a who's who of like, is that? It is! <laughs> like the whole time, you know? And I mean, the, the, the animation 
style, it's it's very representative of the main character of Miles Morales. He's kind of like a color outside the lines kind of cat kind of guy. He's bitten by one of the radioactive spiders that nailed Peter Parker so many years earlier. Right. He's the main protagonist of this film. He's sort of the new he becomes this new Spider-Man. Miles is a person like I said colors outside the lines, doesn't fit in with the typical crowd and that is this film style like mm-hmm. absolutely to a T. Um it never really lets up with what it can do to surprise. I think there's a twist in the middle that is just crushing and leads to some really raw emotion between Miles and his father. Yeah. Um, that's really unlike anything, any other film in this genre. I think this genre is so of it this time now, whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but this film is better than all of them. I mm. think I didn't really go into it thinking I was going to see the best film of the year, but yeah. I mean, I was simultaneously out of my seat, just shocked and cheering <laughs> wow. and pinned back as a result of the action. I mean, it grabbed sort of every emotion I had and every preconceived notion of a film in this world, in the genre and or in this multiverse well, in this multi, yeah. mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and it just, I mean, really it just turned it on its head and just mm-hmm. sort of, it's sort of like, well, now nothing can really live up to that, frankly. <laughs> like, what the hell? Um, and it was one of the only movies where I was just like, if you would have told me they were just running it back again, I'd be like, let's go. Let's do it. <laughs> it was the run it back movie of the it year. It was. I mean, like, it just, yeah, the, the, I wouldn't care. Just charge my credit card. It doesn't matter. <laughs> like, I'll just, like, I, I was as shocked as anybody mm-hmm. coming out of this movie going, wow, was that movie incredible? Or was it just me? And everybody's like, no, it was. I was like, okay, good. I'm yeah. glad it wasn't just me that looked at it. But mm. I just couldn't get enough of it. Mm. I I just think that it, when, and the only reason that I have it over Beale Street is because it's something, it's the one that's just stuck with me for some strange reason. I have no mm. idea why. You know, the music was really good, but it just, it's like, it hit every emotion that you'd want. Like, oh, it's funny. Oh, it's dramatic. Oh, it has heart. Oh, it has this. Oh, and just like across the board, um, just, I mean, absolutely mm. fantastic. So um, it's no, yeah. it's no Roma. I don't think. <laughs> I think in dude, retrospect, dude, I is, maybe should have said. That is, oh, maybe I'll. Uh, yeah. Ryan, but, let me tell you, that's yeah. that's an inspired pick. Thank you. I, yeah. No, I I like this movie. I think I have to caveat my viewing experience by saying I did not see it on the big screen. Um, so I don't think it's the same movie, to be honest. No. Because um, even on the small screen, it was like watching it with acid-covered glasses. So I think if I were to see that on the big screen, it may be a hair different experience. Uh, I think my my enjoyment of it as stands was maybe a little more surface level than yours, but I responded very, very well to the fact that this movie is so dazzling and unique in its conception that I'm kind of amazed it even exists because in this landscape when everything is kind of trying Cookie to be, cutter. it's kind of trying to be Pixar, you know, everything, everyone's taking that style because Hollywood is, is is so great at trailblazing mm-hmm. that a movie like this that it's, a, it's right that's right in the title that is out of its own multiverse you know the fact that the plot the plot deals with like quantum physics mm-hmm. and this theory of the multiverse and how the animation style is unlike anything these eyes I've ever seen uh, it was a, a very compelling experience that I. I did like. I would have had no idea. I mean, yeah. I, if you would have told me at the beginning of the year when I first mm. saw that trailer, be like, "Hey, that's that's gonna be your best movie of the year," I'd be like, mm. "You're full of shit. What are you talking <laughs> about?" Like, 
and so yeah, I like I said, I was as shocked as anybody that I had to, that I that I landed yeah. on this particular uh, pick. But yeah. I'm 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 glad I still get to uh, Sony keep and Marvel just thread. snuck a little gem they in there really at the end did. of the year. Yeah, they really did. And and I think it needs to be it's it needs to be seen in a in a theater. Not that you wouldn't enjoy mm-hmm. it if you if it wasn't, but I yeah. think it's it's always it's always enhanced. I think when you have a film uh, that you can see on the big screen. Yeah, honestly, that I did not see that coming. No, so you've surprised the <laughs> shit out of me. <laughs> Do you uh, have an idea? Did you have a thought of what no it clue. might be? No clue. Okay. No clue. No, clue. no, no. I even if I did have a clue, yeah, you would I would have lost that game of clue. <laughs> okay. Like there was I, I was nowhere in the ballpark. <laughs> Great number one pick, Ryan. Thank I think you. that wraps up another uh, top ten list. Man, eleven years going on forty. Well, are we we'll gonna be see. doing? Are we? Are we gonna be doing this in our fifties? Is that where we're going? I mean, I honestly don't see why not. Like, why I, can't we? I don't think. I think we've 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 done it in every other aspect of our lives. So I don't see why we wouldn't mm. just keep it going. And you people at home who can't see us, we've. We're apparently recording this from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> Ryan has updated his mic setup substantially, yeah. and it kind of feels like we're really doing. You know, we've all I've really ta- it, it right. it's always felt this thing, like mm-hmm. like this, but we're we're really doing this thing, we're and doing it's it, man. and it's a lot of fun. It's great. So stick around. We have another episode coming. It's going to be about some of our favorite moments and some other things that we kind of want to talk about that we didn't want to touch on necessarily uh, with the top 10 list. Uh, But we hope you've enjoyed the top 10 list. Clayton, I know I've had a blast. I think the least amount of overlap we maybe ever had. Yeah, I was actually going to mention that to you. I think we only had one. We had the favorite and we had Cold War. Oh, yeah. Okay. Two, though. That's like... That's nothing. Nothing. We usually have at least four or five. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, for... uh, uh, I'm Ryan. Did we ever say what our names were to I don't open think this? So, no. If you don't know who we are by now, <laughs> yeah, you're... you are just no. I don't even want to know. Just turn the, turn fuck the fucking fuck podcast off, off now. Yeah. Who are you? Well, I'm Clayton. I'm Ryan. Bye. Thank you for listening. <laughs>